Welcome to Care Talk, America's home for incisive debate about healthcare, business, and policy. I'm David Williams, president of Health Business Group. And I'm John Driscoll, the CEO of CareCentrics. David, who do we have to talk to today? We have Dr. Annie Andrews. She's an expert in gun violence prevention and a volunteer with Moms Demand Action. Well, welcome, Dr. Annie. Thank you for having me. Tell us a little bit about where we are in terms of gun violence and, you know, particularly around kids. I mean, it just feels like this issue is treated much more like a political issue as opposed to a healthcare issue. And I think every American understands we want to protect our kids and our families. And can you give us a sense of the the, the state of play around just protecting our kids and, and how we're doing? Sure. Well, I have to agree with you. This topic is approached politically so often, but I wish it was approached from a medical lens more than it is. And I think we're making progress, but the news is not good when you're talking about gun violence in kids. In fact, in 2019, according to the most recent CDC data, gun violence became the leading cause of death for kids in our country. It has been the leading cause of death for Black youth in our country for decades, but in 2019, it became the leading cause of death for all kids in the United States. What's driving that, Annie? Well, I think it's a combination of things. And, you know, I think what we haven't done is taken a multifaceted, comprehensive public health approach to gun violence in this country. And when you look at the graphs that compare the mortality rate of firearm injuries in children to the mortality rate of motor vehicle crashes in children, you can really see that in black and white. And motor vehicle crashes have plummeted because we have taken a comprehensive approach to decreasing those injuries among children. And that includes legislative solutions, that includes industry safety standards, that includes education. And those are things we can all support because who wants kids to die in car crashes? But why is firearm injuries any different? And unfortunately, we just have not seen an acceptance of this issue as a public health crisis, and we have not taken a comprehensive approach to addressing this crisis. You know, you talked about having a comprehensive um, approach with all these different facets to it. And one of those is about when someone goes to the pediatrician, you know, having kids myself, at a certain age, they'll say, hey, you know, the kid is at the age where they might like reach up to the stove. So make sure you don't have something that's that's coming off of it. The car seats when they're little, even coming home from the hospital and so on. And, and you know, pediatricians are trained to talk about it. They talk about it that at different times. Now, I saw in your health affairs post, that the percentage of pediatricians that are willing to discuss firearms actually dropped, hasn't gone up or stayed same. It's, it's, it's just, it's dropped. And is that just an expression of the whole political element to it? Or how do we understand that? So I think it's a couple of things. One, I think we don't learn about this in medical school. There are a few exceptions to that. And we are working hard, a lot of people across the country lurking, working hard to make this a part of undergraduate medical education, as well as residency training programs. Because if we aren't teaching our physicians how to do it, how are they ever going to feel comfortable doing it? And I do think that the political aspect of the firearm conversation does weigh into this. And I have talked to plenty of my colleagues and partners about this issue that we fear that it will trigger a political debate in the exam room. And of course, we want to avoid that. But we just need to go back to the basics that we talk, like you were saying, to parents about car safety. We talk about locking up prescription medications, locking up cleaning supplies under the kitchen sink. We should be talking about locking up firearms as well. How do you, how do you take a conversation about politics and turn it into one about public health? I think that's a great question. Um, and I think what has worked for 
the work that I have done at my own institution is number one, focus on the kids, because I think that you can get um, some more sympathetic ears if you're talking about children. And I think the other thing is to talk about it from a safety standpoint. So I'm not talking about whether or not you should own a gun. I'm talking about how you should secure the gun in your own home if you choose to own a gun. And I think we just have to pivot away from any attempt to make this a political conversation in the exam room and just boil it back down to we're talking about kids and safety. Yeah, it's just, I mean, when you've got four out of 10 you know, households in America with, uh, with guns, I think, I think is the number that I, I recall. And three quarters of the people who have those guns are not going to give them up. It's, it's 80% of them believe it's essential to their version of freedom. And that's particularly given the public health debates we've had over the last, uh, some basic stuff over the last year and a half. I don't think that's, we're going to make progress on that around guns, given the strength of feelings there. But it does feel like with kids, we've got a different vector of opportunity um, from a public health perspective, because I, I, I've got to think that, and it, that, that, that there's that the, the vast majority of Americans, even those who, who, who have guns, we're, want them to be, to be held in a safe fashion. What does that actually mean? Well, so that has been my experience. You know, I practice in the Southeast and I talk to parents about this all the time. And, you know, we want parents to keep their guns locked, unloaded and separate from ammunition. And that really is the definition of secure storage. And, you know, like you said, we can all agree we want kids to be safe. So if you introduce the conversation and, you know, I want to protect your child and I know that the evidence supports that children are safer in homes with firearms that are locked, unloaded, and separate from ammunition, you can keep the conversation focused on the child's safety. And the other thing I will say is that I think as healthcare providers, we are witness to some really awful tragedies, you know, all the time. We see sort of the effects of failed policies in our hospitals and our clinics all the time. And I think that for some reason, we feel like we need to kind of keep what we see to ourselves. And certainly we have to respect HIPAA and patient privacy, but there's no reason we shouldn't be telling the public what it's like to care for a child who has found their dad's gun and accidentally shot themselves in the face and what it's like to talk to those parents every day or what it's like to talk to the teenager who was shot in the spine and will never walk again. And you're trying to motivate him to go to rehab, but you also have to give him the expectation that he probably won't walk again. You know, these are things that me and my colleagues and all of us are seeing day to day. And we need to talk about that so that the public who we think will be sympathetic to these stories of children getting shot, that they can understand where we're coming from. And it's not from a political place. I'm not interested in the politics around guns. I'm interested in keeping kids safe from gun violence. So if you look at the age span that pediatrician is typically caring for anywhere from zero to at least 18, maybe 21, how do the messages differ across? I mean, this the safe storage is the same at different ages, although at a certain point you say it's not enough to put the the key just on the top of your you know your cabinet or whatever. But but beyond the storage uh, element of it, what are the messages that are different across the different age spans? Yes, well, you guys have certainly done your homework about secure storage. I'm happy to hear that. Um, so I think it's important. I think we often immediately think about the preschool and toddler age 
children um, when we talk about unintentional shootings. But when we take a step back and think about firearm injuries in kids as a whole, we know that the majority of those injuries are actually assaults or homicides. A third are suicides and about 5% are those unintentional injuries. I have found it easiest to start the conversation about those young kids. You don't want them to access an unsecured firearm and that you, you know, children as young as the age of two are strong enough to pull a trigger. Those conversations, I think everybody can kind of uh, understand where I'm coming from. But you're right that as children get older, we start to see a much larger proportion of the firearm deaths related to suicide. And that conversation needs to be different because adolescents have a different ability to access firearms in the home if they know the code to the safe or if they know where dad keeps the key or if they know that on Sunday afternoon, dad is cleaning his guns and the the case is going to be open. So you have to think more critically about how you're securing guns in your home when you start to have those adolescents and even preteens. You know, we start to see suicide pop up in those nine to 10 year olds. And so it's an important conversation to have across the pediatric age span. And don't we have sort of a growing problem with, 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 with suicide, particularly during COVID with kids? I mean, it just, I believe the numbers have sort of popped, just they, they, they were going in the wrong direction already. And I think they've gotten even worse in the last year. Yes, you're absolutely right. We've sort of seen a convergence of multiple crisis, crises that are affecting our youth. And, you know, I think anyone who takes care of children can tell you that COVID has had an incredibly detrimental impact on the mental health of children of all ages because of isolation and being away from their friends and the stress of living in the time of a pandemic. And we were seeing mental health crisis already before COVID. And then you compound that with the public health crisis that is firearm violence. And yes, I am deeply worried about the youth of our country as these two things continue to intersect. And so we have to go back to what we can do to prevent it. And it's access to mental health care for youth. It's identifying risk factors in youth who need support from mental health services. It's better funding for mental health services across the country. And then it's those basic steps of keeping lethal means away from at-risk youth. And so that goes back to locking up your firearms and locking up prescription medications. Annie, just as you go through the, if you think about the 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 the, the conversations day to day you're having with a parent, you know, in the South, you're, you're likely to be running into a lot of gun owners. Um, people who have guns typically don't just have one; they've got a few. That the, the gun ownership continues to grow, but actually, the gun purchase among gun owners is going up. Um, it's, uh, you know, how do you how do you have that conversation in a non kind of uh, charged way. Mm -hmm. Well, I think you're right. And I've talked to a lot of, you know, living in the South, a lot of people who think of hunting as a really important part of their family tradition, and they're taught about hunting and firearm safety at a young age. And similarly, people who have served in the military who take this very, very seriously. And so I think we have to be smart about who the messenger is. And, um, you know, have a big tent and bring gun owners and, you know, military people, police officers into this movement to help us educate in the most effective way possible. And I do think that we all need to do our due diligence in educating ourselves about firearms so that the family I'm talking to understands that I have put in the work to understand you know, how gun locks work and how safes work and what the different kinds of firearms are so that they can see me as a trusted messenger. I mean, it took me a long time to learn about 
you know, pneumonia so that when I talk to a family, they can see that I know what I'm talking about. And we need to do the same thing about firearms. And we need to find ways to educate ourselves so we can have effective conversations with families. Now, there's a lot of uh, news that, you know, this is a, a challenging uh, topic and a lot of bad news. It sounds like there's some progress in some places. What what can you say about progress either on the sort of legislative or awareness side or, or what you're seeing even among the you know physicians that are that are coming into practice now? Yeah, so I do think that um, we get caught up in the wins and the losses, but I think overall the culture of our country is moving in the right direction when it comes to protecting kids from firearms. I think that this has become a more normalized conversation between parents about secure firearm storage in the home. I think there are more physicians who are vocally advocating for common sense gun laws. And I think that change will take time, but I am optimistic that we are moving in the right direction. And while I don't think it should be the solution, we have seen a lot of incredibly effective youth advocates out there talking about how they don't want to grow up in schools worried about a school shooting. They don't want to go to the movie theater and think about this. And, you know, I think it is a little bit of a sad reflection on our society that sometimes we look to the youth to help us lead these movements. But Thankfully, there are some really stepping up and, you know, I think the adults need to pay attention and get on board. Do you think doctors are afraid to have these conversations, Annie? I mean, that there's been a, a reluctance to jump in? I mean, yes, I do think that doctors are hesitant. And I think it goes back to us not getting the training in medical school to address this. And I think that will help solve that problem if we start incorporating this into medical school or residency training. John, I hesitate to ask this because you're going to give me a hard time for reading it somewhere. But um, you know, we know that the federal government hasn't really funded gun research, and we hear that it's that's important, and maybe that's going to you know come up, and maybe there's some private sources of funding as well. well. But it has, David. Did you do your research this time? It actually has. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. Ca- I'm not caught up in my reading, John. But. Annie, are there areas of gun research that would be helpful? I mean, what, what does that mean that we need research? Would, would that help uh, with some of these some of these questions that we're asking here? Yes, um, I think that's one of the really unfortunate things that's happened over the past decades in our country is that you know physicians haven't had a lot of access to funds to study this problem, and that probably drove some physicians to not choosing this as a career path, right? Because if there aren't grants available, why are you going to pick this as your research topic? Fortunately, that is changing, but not nearly as rapidly as we need it to. You know, there are those graphs that show the burden of disease versus the level of federal funding. And we are way out of whack when it comes to firearm injuries. So we need exponentially higher levels of federal funding for research to address this public health crisis. And, you know, I heard someone, Dr. Cunningham, actually say once that we have never solved a public health crisis in this country without help from the federal government. And this is not going to be any different. We can't do it without that research funding. Where would you put the dollars, Annie, if you were to kind of just throw a dart and say we need to because it's it for for it was drained. It was very low. There's a modest amount now, but it's trivial relative to the the burden of of firearms, suicide. You know, wrong you know, accidental shootings and then and then obviously homicide. If I could pick, I mean, I think we're you know we're at maybe one one thousandth of the funding we need. Um, I mean, we're just really nowhere even in the same ballpark universe that we need. Um, 
And there's so much that we can learn even about the epidemiology of firearm violence in this country. And a lot of the data sets that we use are so limited because they're either only deaths or they're only hospital-based data, so you can't follow patients longitudinally. And there's a lot of work going on in the country, people trying to really improve the quality of data we have to study, to understand this problem. The other thing we need is we need to understand the effects of legislation and we need good data to do that and we need funding to support scientists to do those studies. Well, we really appreciate your your, your, your work clinically and, and, in, and in public health. Uh, thanks so much for making some time for us today. Well, thank you for having me. Great. Well, that's it for yet another edition of Care Talk, this time with Dr. Annie Andrews, expert in gun violence prevention. I'm David Williams, president of Health Business Group. And I'm John Driscoll, the CEO of Care Thanks for listening and please subscribe.